Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody. It's Ben and Dan coming at you uh, with another episode of Juwants Live today uh, with our very, very special guest, member of Knesset from the Blue and White Party, Michal Kadler-Wunsch. How you doing, Michal? I'm good. How are you guys? Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Before we jump into this, we got two super quick announcements very, for our audience. Very quick announcements. So check it, everybody. As you all know, Juwants is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners just like you. So if you are interested in making an ongoing contribution or a one-time contribution with PayPal or Patreon, or if you are a company organization looking to sponsor uh, on our podcast, you can check us out at www.juance.com and we'll get you set up. With some swag also, we promise. Very good swag. Secondly, not to be missed. uh, So these times, as we all know, we understand the challenges of connecting to an audience with creative meaningful content. So if you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you. We're introducing Juanced Live. Just like on the show, we can be at times pretty engaging, inquisitive, and witty in person too. And our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from our guests doesn't end at the studio door. So if you're interested in us hosting a live dedicated podcast or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event with authentic and emotion-evoking audience participation virtually, or hopefully soon in person, Juwanced Live is your creative solution. Plus, with our extensive network of intriguing guests on a variety of topics, we have got you covered. For more information, join us, connect to us, write to us on uh, www.juwanced.com. Without further ado, we have today member of Knesset from the Blue and White Party, Michal Kotler-Wanch. Welcome to Juwanced. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where are we speaking to you from today? Because it looks like you're in the halls of the Knesset. I am not in the halls of the Knesset, but this virtual reality is really growing on me. I'm in my home in Ranana. Love it. Love it. How long have you been a member of uh, our fine Knesset? Six whole months. Amazing. Has it been uh, the craziest uh, six months of your life so far? I'd say it's been um, a tremendous roller coaster. Um, and actually, uh, for those that follow Israeli politics mildly closely, um, you know that I was part of what's called the Israeli version of the Norwegian law. So that um, basically um, enabling my entrance into Knesset was, first of all, the implosion of blue and white into itself, whereby Yeshatid and Telem did not, just decided not to, unfortunately, join the unity government after three election campaigns in the shadow, looming shadow of COVID-19, which we at the time didn't even know the full extent of. Um, And because um, 
blue and white imploded. There were simply too many ministers, speaking of ministers or MKs, um, simply too many ministers um, that um, the you know remaining MKs were named to be um, in the rem what, what remained of blue and white. And therefore the Norwegian law, the original Norwegian law actually in terms of separation of powers has all ministers resign and the next members on the list joining as MKs. In our case, five ministers resigned and I am one of the MKs that joined Knesset six months ago. And you came in, you originally uh, were part of the Telem list, right? Boogie Alon's Telem list. Um, and then you kind of uh, jumped ship um, uh, over to, to Blue and White Party. Um, what kind of spurred that move? Um, and, did, and did you, would you call it jumping ship or? So, so maybe the way that I see it is actually that very sadly, Boogie, um, along with Yeshatid, jumped ship. Um, when I joined Boogie Alon's party, Telem, um, and the word doesn't translate so well, statesmanship yeah, right. doesn't translate so well into English. Um, part of that statesmanlike behavior um, would have um, actually, in my view, um, uh, led us to join a unity government, even after elections number two, certainly after elections number th three, certainly with, as I said, the COVID-19 challenge looming. Um, and at the time, sadly, um, although I supported very, very dramatically the coming together of several parties when I joined Telem and, and was very, very involved um, with Telem right from the formation, from its formation, from its inception, including, you know, my part of, um, you know, the relevant uh, chapters in the party platform that I was able to contribute to in the manifest of the party um, in, ter in terms of my own, um, you know, legal background and so forth, um, Israel diaspora relations, Olim, um, and Israel's challenges in the international arena, those were all issues that I brought with me to Telem, but um, when Telem opted out of the unity government um, and and not um, into what really was an, an incredibly um, irresponsible act, as far as I was concerned, then um, I actually thought it was a very simple choice um, to enter the unity government. I did not find it difficult at all. Um, and that was the decision. Well, I, I think it was a uh, personally, I mean, this, I say this bef before having met you and before knowing that you would come into the Knesset because of it. Um, I published a lengthy article um, applauding Gant for uh, his mamlachtiyut, right? That, that act of statesmanship. Um, and, and I said at the time, and I, and I think it's probably going to happen. It's probably going to end his political career, but uh, I think it was the right thing to do at the time, given the COVID crisis. Um, so were you, yeah, go ahead. Were you, were you disappointed in, uh, in Bogey Alon? Um, I wasn't disappointed um, because uh, we'd been through many, many conversations really throughout the process of my decision as it was coming to a head. And I understood that the likelihood of his making that decision was very, very small. Um, from his own perspective, he couldn't make that decision. He wasn't able to. And I would have said that that statesmanship and the responsibility, and I'd say one more thing, the commitment to Israel's internal unity and resiliency um, really left no choice. Um, disappointed is not the right word. I was I was saddened because I think that blue and white, and, and, and we see the fallout um, as we speak, blue and white was, um, was genuinely disempowered um, by that original implosion. Um, and, uh, and, and we're living with the consequences, as I said. Uh, and I agree um, that Benny Gantz's decision was one to basically um, lay down you know, on what might be an electric fence, what might be um, uh, the end of his career, political career, but what really led him right through was what was good for the Israeli public, whether they voted for blue and white or not, whether they'll vote for him in the future or not. 
um, we'll talk about it as we proceed in this conversation, but the very same responsibility that led us into this government may indeed, though it's a terrible option, terrible going to elections at this point, may indeed um, uh, uh, nudge us out of this government because at some point there's a tipping point, right? And that responsibility yeah. in a dysfunctional government um, has to be weighed out with you know, the option of staying in. Yeah, and, and it's it's going to be a shame if we do end up going to uh, new elections, but that seems to be kind of at least where the the political winds are are blowing. Uh, I want to jump back actually. Uh, you, if we talk about you like a superhero, you've got a cool origin story. I mean, you kind of are a superhero, so that's uh, that's fine. You've got a you know anyone who's read about you publicly um, w- would know this, but if they don't, and and if they pick up the slight Canadian accent, and if they pick up the name Cutler. Um, you grew up in, in, we can say, maybe two very interesting households kind of at different points in your life. You want to kind of take us to, to uh, a little bit to your beginnings and your upbringing? I think it's a pretty cool story. It's a good story. It's just mine, but it's a good story. Sure, sure. I, uh, I was born in Jerusalem and I actually grew up in the hallways of the Knesset. So I tell people this all the time. The only part that isn't true anymore is that I used to spend a lot of time in the Knesset cafeteria as a young child. And I haven't visited it, I think, once since entering as an MK because I simply don't have any time. Um, but other than that, uh, really running around the you know corridors of the Knesset as a young child and being privy to that is the night of the Mahapach. That word was actually coined that night, 1977. And I was sitting between two giants, figurative giants. They were both quite short, actually. Seven years old. I was seven years old in 1977. I just turned 50 this week. Um, Happy birthday. So 1977. Thank you very much. Uh, seven years old, sitting really in what was a euphoric and, and anybody who understands sort of the history of this country and the way that it was founded and the sort of many, many years of Mapai leadership that didn't enable, for example, my own grandfather, my Saba, who moved from Iraq. So he was a tailor until his dying day. Um, there were a lot of, and you know, this is a lot to unpack. And actually, we're still living the consequences of this today. Yeah. But, um, but, 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 but there was a very, very um, uh, exceptional, euphoric um, uh, sort of, um, uh, I would say, understanding of or recognition of everybody's right that night. Sort of a. A, a truth and reconciliation, a, some sort of a, a, a moment in time that really represented much more than we can relay today. I was privy to that night. And actually, my mother being, you know, Begin's parliamentary um, assistant at the time, you know, was often late from work. And so the story I can share is that the the, the music conservatory was right next door to the prime minister's home at the time. And um, I had piano lessons right next door to the prime minister's home after Menachem Begin and Elisa Begin moved into that home. And so one day when my mother was late, I sort of went over to the house and said to the one guard, times were different, 1977, to the one guard that was at the front gate, you know, my mother's late, can I come in? And he said, of course. And so it became a ritual that I would come over and play piano for Elisa Begin and have cookies and milk until my mother came home from work with the boss. And really, really a very, very... Um, privileged um, um, uh, and humbling experience of knowing great people with tremendous humility and an incredible commitment to Jewish peoplehood and to all of Israeli society. Uh, that is distinct in my memory. Um, and then, of course, my mom um, married, as you mentioned, 
Professor Erwin Kotler, really a renowned international lawyer and human rights activist who I've represented the likes of Andrei Sakharov. Yeah. I, I said I've, I've met Erwin a number of times and he's uh, really one of the nicest people uh, I think that's out there. What was he, what was he doing in Israel at the time? Um, so the story goes like this. My, 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 my dad was actually um, uh, really, uh, I would say, a daredevil. And so he not only went to Syria to assess the, um, the state of Syrian jury, which he did as a Canadian Jew. Of course, he had a Canadian passport. Mm-hmm. But he also at the time was beginning to construct what was known as the Sharansky case. He represented Natan Sharansky, then known as Anatoly Sharansky. In general, all refuseniks, Ida Nudel, um, and many, many more of the refuseniks. But, but, but Natan Sharansky's case was the case and cause. He basically built a legal case. And if anybody saw that he, the, the, the case he constructed actually ended up with every head of state around the world. Um, and so on those two missions, he came to Israel and he came to meet then, you know, the leader of the opposition, Menachem Begin. And my mother blocked his entrance and said, what do you want? And, you know, somebody said to her, there's some Canadian crazy Jew out there who says he wants to meet, you know, with Begin. And that's how they met. They met around Syrian jury and the Sharansky case. Unbelievable. And, and then you grew and up- actually, yeah, go ahead. And I'll just share that very emotionally, my, my, um, my maiden speech at the Knesset, I was very, very, very honored to have Natan Sharansky, former Supreme Court Judge um, um, Miriam Noor, and Simcha Golden, who we'll talk a little bit about after, um, all three of them really representing different junctions of my own life, um, uh, you know, that really brought me to Knesset, that probably formed much of my legal and political understanding and identity. So yeah. been- then I grew up in Montreal. I was just going to say, it must Sorry. have been a very surreal moment to be elected to Knesset. It's like a closing of a circle in a huge, huge way. Like it's a profound closing of a circle. Yeah, it's, it, I spoke about it in my maiden speech. It's a closing of a circle and an opening of a whole new one um, with a tremendous sense of responsibility that I really feel in every day at Knesset. I mean, my staff know that I treat every day like our first and our last, and it very possibly may be, but there is just so much that we need to do on our watch um, of this incredible place that is the miracle that is the state of Israel and so much responsibility that I feel that our generation has and also the specific voice that I bring um, you know, to the discussion decision-making tables um, compels me to um, sound it quite uh, loudly. <laughs> do, you think, do you think the influence of, um, maybe you're too young, the influence of Begin, but certainly the influence of Erwin Kotler on your worldview, on your outlook, on your activism? I mean, how, how do you think, um, you know, those two um, giant figures, uh, you know, and, and especially Begin's in, in forming this country, how do you think that influenced your political outlook and your worldview? Look, they really intersect. If you think of Jabotinsky and what Begin represented, right? Chamesheth Amimim, really it's foundational human rights that, you know, um, and uh, the importance of what um, ideology is, right? What party ideology or what a party um, um, platform or manifesto looks like, as opposed to the personal and the political politics that we're um, experiencing, actually not only in Israel, really worldwide. And the challenge to, I would say, renew the covenant around ideology of, of politics politics, especially in this country, especially as we form, you know, the vision, mission and values for the next 72 years. I'll say um, that most definitely the intersection of, of, of that, as I said, the legal understandings, and I myself, of course, uh, 
you know, having studied law at Hebrew University. Fast forward, I did grow up in, grow, uh, grow up in Montreal and, you know, um, after high school came to Israel to serve as a lone soldier. I did study law at Hebrew University after the army um, and then um, pursued a master's in law in McGill University. So lived back in Canada and uh, returned to Israel 10 years ago with four Canadian children of my own. Um, I think that that back and forth, um, in addition to my own legal understanding, and you're right, the formation of um, very, very fundamental um, uh, responsibility to human rights, to foundational values of international law, um, uh, to the very precepts that international law is based on, um, are, um, are, they instruct my everyday. They're, uh, they're, they're really my uh, compass in everything that I do. Uh, and really intersect not only um, in terms of what I look at internally, as I refer to Israel's resiliency internally, and certainly our relationship with, with the diaspora as well, but in terms of Israel standing in the international arena and all that, that's sort of packed into that statement, um, which we can talk about as well. Yeah. Um, do you, you, you kind of mentioned that Israeli politics and maybe world politics have gone in a personal direction as opposed to an ideological party platform direction. Is that, I mean, do you think the Likud today has kind of lost its ideological position and is too centered around a specific personality or personalities? And, and, and I would add to that also, you mentioned when you were talking about uh, the late Prime Minister Menachem Begin, his humility uh, as, as one of the core 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 values of, of his life and and I mean everybody can remember seeing I think there's like an iconic picture of him kind he of flew coach yeah flying coach on the airplanes uh you know nothing to excess um you know very I mean it was a different time it, uh, it, do you do you think that when you joined with uh, Bogie alone and then do you think you're this is the new kind of ideological mamlachti right or and that kind of Likud has lost it. Is that is that the switch that you kind of tried to make there? Look, Likud has to decide for itself. I mean, you know, essentially, uh, it, it's just a word, right? Likud yeah. was formed to be something. It was formed to be based on that, you know, on those foundations, on those values. As I, I said, Chameshet Amimim. I hear a lot more of Shloshet Akafim, Kisif Kavod Vikoach, from Likud members today, and it's something that Likud members have to look at very, very deeply. Um, and and I'll say it's really not personal and it's not political at all. It's also a part of our reality, of a global reality that that the public needs to be aware of I, you know it, it it could even have to be um, it could even be a part of you know the reality of digital platforms and so on so you know the the you know most uh, extreme uh, or polarized or um, radicalized um, messages are those that make headlines um, it's that it's that clear um, it's that challenging and 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 I'll say it's what Israel cannot afford and it also doesn't actually represent where Israeli society is. So interestingly, if we note the results of three consecutive election campaigns and what we're coming to very possibly now and the stalemate that we were at are actually because, in my view, the majority of the Israeli public, an overwhelming majority, are somewhere right there in the center. It's yeah. the power of moderation. And, and, and there is not one representational party that actually speaks to that whole mandate. And part of that is, for me, um, something that we're not, um, not necessarily identifying clearly. And that is, 
and, and it is actually the reason, or at least part of the reasoning for one of the first bills that I um, proposed in Knesset being the basic law declaration of independence, because there is, in my view, um, a real struggle beneath um, the surface, maybe even in it, it at times above um, the surface between Israel as democratic, a state of all its citizens, and Israel as Jewish and democratic, which it was founded to be based on the values in the Declaration of Independence, never anchored in law, never receiving that sort of um, uh, official um, anchoring and legislation that, that, that demands that we identify, that we interpret um, all laws in accordance with what is the Declaration of Independence, Independence, which clearly states the return of an indigenous people to its ancestral homeland after thousands of years of exile, and alongside that, the assurance of equality to all of its citizens and minorities. So, so and, this, uh, is, this is one of your um, efforts that you're trying to push through in the Knesset. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you clearly think, uh, and I, I've kind of at times I can see this, that the very delicate balance we have between Jewish and democratic, democratic and Jewish, can it, it feels like it's under attack at times. Now, the funny thing is, depending on if you go to secular Israelis, they'll feel like it's under attack from their direction. If you go to ultra-Orthodox or the kind of small C conservative, you know, uh, Orthodox, the Hardal camp, they're going to say that it's under attack from the secular direction and each side feels like they're losing out. Where, where do you... You yourself, um, if, if I read correctly, um, identify as kind of liberal modern orthodox or something in, in that kind of. Yeah. So first of all, as a Canadian, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a funny question to even ask us, right? You know, what yeah. I do in my own home. And, you know, I guess I'm a pluralistic orthodox Jew, yeah. which doesn't mean anything because the pluralism that I grew up on, whether it was Rabbi Hartman, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's, um, sees um, our my role as um, as uh, as enabling others to find their own sense of identity without minimizing, of course, the challenges of what Jewish and democratic looks like. And there are challenges. Um, the point I'd make about that is, well, there's a couple of points. The first is, uh, I think that with the multiplicity of identities that Olim bring to the fore, um, and especially Anglo Olim, you know, um, according to a recent survey, there are about, you know, a quarter of a million of us um, that know that Jewish and democratic can coexist in harmony, not without challenge, but not only can, must coexist in harmony. And so I think that, and I say this very often to Olim, I basically think that it's our turn to lean in. I think that in many ways, Olim have really integrated especially Anglo-Alim into Israeli society and, um, you know, whether it's entrepreneurship and business and education and at, 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 at every level, but not at the public and political sphere. And at the public and political sphere, I really think that our voices have a tremendous, not only ability and potential, but responsibility um, to inform the conversation, which you referred to, um, we really haven't had in 72 years for many reasons that, that, you know, and, and we can, you know, sort of review the reasons, but that reactive putting out fires always in an emergency um, state, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of approach to conducting ourselves as a country, that has been the reality, a real existential reality. And I'll say Canada at 72 still had residential schools. If anybody doesn't know what those are, you know, you can look it up. But, um, but 
it's very important that we look at the next 72 years and take responsibility for those next 72 years. And I believe that our generation, whereas the founding fathers and mothers laid down the physical infrastructure, as I said, the Declaration of Independence and everything that came on top of that, it is our turn. This is our watch. And we need to be having the difficult conversation of what that means. What does that look like, Jewish and democratic? Because there's no such thing as status quo. Yeah. And you're uh, right. It changes from, you know, we push back with the status quo is, is it is always moving is, is one of my uh, colleagues likes to say what what is your vision for jewish and democratic how jewish um i mean i'm i'm kind of with you in that um pluralistic orthodox kind of space benny's is a lot more secular in kind of his his worldview but but yeah growing up uh, we grew up in the states you grew up in canada it does give you a different kind of um outlook on on how that balance looks in in the public space it, what is your um, and before we hand it back to you, ben, Benny wants no, no, to no, jump you, in. You're in the oh, middle okay. of your points. <laughs> so, <laughs> go, go um, what does it look like to you? What, where should be that balance between Jewish and democratic? Uh, how Jewish should the public space be on kind of a lot of these hot button issues that are being debated right now, including in the halls of the Knesset, where do you think some of these issues should fall? If we're talking about conversion, if we're talking about marriage pluralism, if we were talking about, uh, public transportation on Shabbat. And, and I'd love to hear how, you know, it connects to your upbringing and your, your personal ideology on these issues. So the first thing that I'd say about that is it is imperative that we engage these issues, right? If you look at the Gavizon Meidan covenant, and I say this as a lawyer, the law is not always the best vehicle <laughs> to address challenging issues. Yeah. Um, a covenant, and it was called, you know, a manat gavizon meidan, it did not use the law because it noted that there needs to be a malleability, a flexibility, an ongoing conversation, and the changing, and, you know, very sadly, a manat gavizon meidan is probably collecting, you know, dust on a shelf somewhere. We've done little with it can, to can actually explain, incorporate it. Uh, sorry, can you explain to our listeners that may not be familiar with that, what that was? And yes, by the way, so, we lost uh, Ruth Gavis and Elia Shalom. We lost her this year also. Uh, tough year for right. Jewish visionaries. She wasn't COVID, was it? No. I no. no, no before, and now you after. have to ask that every time somebody dies in 2020, yeah. it was a COVID. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Ruthie Gavis and Elia Shalom um, was, was actually an incredible um, um, legal scholar. Um, uh, and uh, her real commitment to... Um, to conversation, to engagement in discussion, to challenging paradigms, not to speak out of position, right? She was a secular Jew and she engaged with Rabbi Yaakov Meidan in order to create the coexistence, knowing that, you know, what Rabbi Lord Sachs and other tremendous loss um, of, you know, of Reese, a much more recent um, um, loss, um, spoke about the dignity of difference, noting that, acknowledging the dignity of difference. They sat down and created a covenant through which we are committed to living together here and found solutions, right? Much softer than law. So in the public space, what does Shabbat look like? What does it look like in cities that people need public transportation, but it needs to still look, look different than every other day? And there are solutions. And I can tell you, and I experience this all the time, both in the committee that I chair and in other committees that I sit on, our work as parliamentarians, sort of transcending difference and focusing on all that binds us together, happens regularly. I have terrific conversations with my Haredi colleagues, with my colleagues from Shas, with my colleagues from every 
party so long as we have an understanding of a shared vision, mission, and values. Again, I can't help myself but say the importance of anchoring the Declaration of Independence, of working through the differences, of working through the understanding that that is, unless we want to, you know, rethink the vision, mission, and values of the State of Israel, that is what it was founded to be. You know, Harav Kook alongside Ben-Gurion. Um, and and Ben-Gurion walked around this country with the Bible in his hand. That was his Kushan. He went to Lord Peel with that, with that Bible. He understood that that is the source of our indigeneity and that is the source of our um, ability to, to claim that we are returning to our ancestral homeland um, and we cannot divorce ourselves from it. The only thing that I'd say, and this is where we have to evolve in our conversation is where, we, um, where we've enabled, um, I would say, use and abuse of power um, in all kinds of ways, right? So again, I go easy on us and I say, we didn't have sovereignty for thousands of years. We are a sovereign country for the last 72 years and we need to renegotiate that balance. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. What does it look like when you have a sovereign Jewish and democratic state, a sovereign Jewish state in which we have not just geographic sovereignty or political sovereignty, but sovereignty of the state of mind, what I would call in Hebrew, ribonut to the atit. And that is not a simple thing to say. And I, you know, I think of it often, I, I, I spend my Fridays going down to Otef um, Israel um, by the Gaza border, the, you know, um, it's called the Black Arrow Memorial. It's a paratroopers memorial. The reason I go there and I'm there um, joined by um, members of Kibbutzim and Moshevim uh, is actually to stand alongside the Golden family who is there every single Friday. Wow. Um, and some of our listeners may not be familiar, but there are two deceased soldiers, Hadar Golden and Arun Shaul, two Israeli civilians, Avera Mangisto and Isham Asayed. It's actually, if I had to point, pinpoint one moment that directed me to Knesset to take action beyond you know, legal reasons research and, you know, pursuing, you know, um, uh, research and uh, uh, professional and, 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 and legal understandings of um, the, the processes, the global processes and the way they affect Israel. If I had to pinpoint one case um, that really brought me to Knesset, it is the golden case and cause in which in violation of international law for over six years, in, in really a standing blatant violation of what was at the time a brokered humanitarian ceasefire, yeah. internationally brokered by the United States, by the United Nations, supported by the EU. Two deceased soldiers, as, as I said, and two civilians that then wandered into Gaza have been held and nothing has been done, nothing. And so when I stand there and when I look at what we've done in terms of sovereignty and we have geographic sovereignty and here we are and I stand on the border every Friday, but I cannot help but think that what is missing is because to make those claims, affirming international law and speaking the language of rights, the lingua franca spoken in the rest of the world by trustees of international law and human rights and not to make the case for reciprocity that demands the return of two deceased soldiers and two civilians as Israel gives humanitarian aid to this very same two million Gazan civilians that are held hostage by a genocidal terror organization holding our own Israeli civilians in captivity. That is, um, that is, you know, the length we still have to go in terms of what I would call ribonut to the atit. Yeah, and, and we applaud you for your efforts on that. Um, you're one of the, the members of Knesset who's well known for, for really being at the front of, of those efforts. And um, why, why isn't that moving? Why, why, why is a powerful, wealthy, 
a country of 9 million people with the strongest military in the region not able to get its, um, its live citizens and deceased soldiers back from a, a, a terrorist uh, group of thugs who are controlling right, like a sliver of land. And, and also, it's not, it's not distant from us. It's not <laughs> Afghanistan to the United States. It's, it's, it's here. We know exactly where they are. It's, it's like- why, why are we stuck there? So, so I'll say, and one of the reasons that I call it a case and cause, but it's really just one manifestation of, or one symptom of something much, much deeper. Um, and, and I would say a paradigm shift that's necessary in our understanding of how international law affects us. I mean, if Ben-Gurion said, um, shmum, we are way past that. Um, and when I say that the state of Israel must affirm international law, must learn to utilize the language of rights, the lingua franca spoken by the rest of the world, whether there are friends, friends or foes, that is but one example. But I could tell you that there are many, many others, whether it's the ICC and an upcoming decision that may decide to hold hundreds of soldiers to account for crimes against humanity. And, um, you know, during the same, actually the very same Gaza war of 2014. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and we see many, many other manifestations. Actually, as we speak, the UN has passed 17 resolutions against the state of Israel and seven against the rest of the world. When I say these things, and they are all manifestations of one and the same, a war waged on the state of Israel, and we can talk about when that happened. Was it 45 years ago with Zionism as racism? Was it in Durban, 2001? But a war waged in the international arena, utilizing legal tools for uh, in the war for the hearts and minds and public opinion, by the way, digital platforms did not help us. And we are essentially in abstention. We are not there. We don't have a long-term strategy. We are reactive. And for the state of Israel to rise from the docket of the accused and be able to go on, not the offense, on stating the obvious, on challenging, on, on exposing and addressing the double standards that enable this, essentially enabling a continued culture of impunity for real regimes, terror regimes, such as Iran, such as Venezuela, such as North Korea, such as China with the Wiggers. I mean, I, I, I dare not go on. Yeah, we need yeah. to take our role in history. It's really, I, I, really important. I, I would go on to say, I mean, you mentioned before the concept of ribonut todatit, or so, sovereignty of the consciousness. Sovereignty of the consciousness. And I so agree with what you're saying. However, I, I, I've, you know, people know this and Dan knows this definitely. I don't live in an Anglo community. My, my, my family, um, my, my wife's family is, uh, you know, very uh, right wing family here in Israel. Uh, and, 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 you know, we have these kind of conversations at the dinner table on Friday night, and, and, and it's like, I'll say to them things like you're saying right now, and they say what I imagine is the mindset of so many people here in this country when they hear such things, which is kind of this, well, who cares about that? The world is anti-Semitic. They don't like us. Why, why would we even engage with them? And, and I think for, to a big part of it, it's not... It's not something that's just so easy to overcome. There, there seems to be something about Israeli culture that says, you know, we were forged in the wake of, you know, the Nazi genocide, the Holocaust, two thousand years of anti-Semitism from the Roman expulsion up until up until World War II. These are international organizations that failed to protect the Jews. Why do we even care to engage with them? And if we do, it kind of plays into the whole "altie frier," don't be a sucker sort of mentality that exists here. And I could tie that back to what you were saying about um, how North Americans and Anglo uh, uh, Olim 
here in Israel are, are integrated in every part of society except for public discourse and politics in that you know when I was when I was here uh, in Ulpan when I made Aliyah 16 years ago and I'm, I'm certain you as well Dan the 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 typical uh, North American Ole or English speaking Ole wants to integrate to become like them, like the Israeli. They don't want to say, no, what can I give to you from my much more mature democratic heritage? It's no, no, no. H- how can I give that up? I don't want to be American Benny anymore. How can I become the Israeli and turn my back to that and the United Nations and the International Criminal Court and all these sorts of institutions that are they're for them. And, and I would argue, and I, and I do argue with my wife at, at times that it is almost the political immaturity of Israelis that they aren't able to see themselves as powerful sovereigns. And, and, and they're still stuck saying, in yeah. this. That's what you're saying, that they're still stuck in this victim mentality. So and it, let me just throw this in here because, you know, we, we, we love to say the umshmum, right? And we love to say they all hate us anyway. And, uh, the, you know, I kind of, you know, I I've, was professionally involved in international relations for a decent amount of my professional life. And, and we do engage with those institutions. We engage very seriously with the UN and we prepare ourselves for the International Criminal Court. So we kind of have this weird relationship with them where we disregard them because they're going to hate us anyway, because there's a, a farcical kind of, it, it almost seems like a, a Mel Brooks movie that you have Iran and Sudan and these kind of countries that are, and the Human Rights Council. Yeah, that are heading these committees and councils. And, and so we disregard them. And yet, on the other hand, we do take them seriously. And we do send representatives. And we do have you know, an ambassador. How, where should we be on that? What should Israel, you know, if, you, if you're now the prime minister, and I'd vote for you, if you're the prime minister um, or the, the foreign minister or whatever minister gets that, uh, that you know, teak, that uh, kind portfolio. of portfolio. Portfolio, thank you. Um, what should Israel's strategy look like? Look, um, it, to a great degree, um, it's everything that I've tried to do ever since I entered Knesset. So for example, and I'm very grateful for this, the Knesset spokesperson, Yariv Levine, appointed me to be the Knesset representative to all issues regarding ICC. It's the first time that that role has been appointed. Now you have to understand we are challenging paradigms and they are real paradigms and they've existed for reasons. They enabled our survival for the first 72 years of life. I am not questioning that for one minute. My claim is that for the next 72 years of continued existence, we need to challenge those paradigms. So we've come this far in whatever way, and now we need to challenge paradigms in order to engage the world in what I would call the opportunity of our lifetime and the opportunity of, and the responsibility of our lifetime. And I'll give an example. Um, uh, I won't give the ICC as an example. I'll give anti-Semitism as an example, okay? Because, it, because it, you know, it came um, actually through three consecutive hearings that I held in the Alian Klita Committee with um, digital platforms, right? Regarding anti-Semitism online, of course, when we say anti-Semitism online, it affects anti-Semitism offline. If my doctoral thesis is about freedom of speech on university campuses, we're way beyond what happens on university campuses. It comes off of campus and into digital, digital platforms. And so when I say anti-Semitism online, of course, it seeps and has effects. And we know that the Pittsburgh massacre, for example, was, you know, 
uh, uh, completely um, uh, fueled by what you know the the, yeah. the the you know this terrible understanding of you know what it is that um, that that had hearings at the Alian Klitsa committee with Facebook with Twitter um, actually TikTok eventually came as well um, the understanding was as follows that the double standards against the state of Israel. They are the double standards that disenable the entire system to actually fulfill its mandate. The ICC to fulfill its mandate with its limited resources in a world where we've committed to never again. And that's why the ICC was founded with a responsibility to protect doctrine. And when we look around at our world and we see again and again, as I said, the Uyghurs in China, the Syrians in Syria and so on, then we have to ask ourselves, what is it that disenables those institutions to fulfill their mandate. And what it is, is double standards. And where do you see the canary in the mine shaft? Israel. It's very, very important that we understand it's really not just about us. And I say this all the time. After those three hearings where Twitter explained to me that calling for genocide against the state of Israel was actually considered saber rattling according to Twitter policy. Ever since that, I'm trying to understand if I'm saber rattling right now, what is saber rattling? You tell me. But saber rattling. Saber rattling, like uh, saber rattling, like uh, hold me back. I'm gonna, I'll get you. You're gonna rattle a saber? No, like saber rattling, like um, like a rattlesnake. Can it be a lightsaber? I think I thought so too. I think more of a lightsaber. That's what I imagine. It's a lightsaber. Yes, a lightsaber. I think so. Saber rattling. So. Right. So the calling for genocide is is saber rattling, whereas, you know, let's say um, a politician's commenting on a political you know, point of view. Well, that can be. Guess what? There's a technological ability to flag it. That can be flagged. And the conversations we held were about the imperative to, first of all, define a problem in order to address it. Right. And lucky for us, we have an IRA working definition of anti-Semitism. It's been accepted by over 30 countries. And the IRA working definition for anti-Semitism in its entirety includes what we know as the three Ds, the demonization, double standards, and delegitimization of the state of Israel. Well then, we have somewhere to begin. So you ask the digital platforms, look, you can adopt the IRA working definition, you can have transparent policy, of course you have to implement it consistently. And basically it's just a test case for what needs to happen with regards to hate speech generally, and not only on digital platforms, but off digital platforms. And what do we discover? We discover that there's, there's a tremendous amount of what we what I would call double standards, right? And that is, for example, when, when I then form the international interparliamentary bipartisan task force with members of parliaments from Canada, the US, the UK, Australia, and Israel, and we realize that we are facing global challenges, by the way, the online global piece is not just with regards to anti-Semitism. This is something that we're going to need to understand and unpack globally because it challenges us. It happens so that, that the hearings that we held in Knesset coincided with the hearings in the United States. So I made it onto Fox News. By the way, local media had no interest in what happened in Knesset that day. Zero. There was zero coverage. So it's a very interesting understanding of bringing these voices into Israeli Knesset to be heard around the decision-making tables, to bring viewpoint diversity in a very, very militaristic culture. And I'm, you know, I served in the army. My husband still serves in Miluim. My children serve in the army. I do not underestimate the importance of military understanding. All I'm saying is it's only one viewpoint that we must take into account, but it's not enough for our continued survival. It's simply not enough anymore because the world is much more complex because the nuanced understanding of how it is we fight wars 
it's not just tanks and airplanes anymore. It's wars for the hearts and the minds of public opinion. I, I have Absolutely. to say, wait, I have to say, though, I, I think it's quite telling of all of what you just said. What stood out to me most, which was both surprising, but also very obvious at the same time, was that local media wasn't interested at all in what you were doing that day. Do, do you think that there's a part, and this goes back to what we were saying before about the victimhood mentality, anti-Semitism, and, and, and don't be a sucker, do you think that there's something there where Israelis aren't interested in anti-Semitism outside of Israel because they don't experience it in their lives and those are just diaspora Jews anyways, they should be in Israel? So here you go. So here's another very important challenge that we have right now that intersects at this time of this tremendous challenge and opportunity with regards to Israel diaspora relations. Another imperative paradigm shift, right? For Israel and for Israelis to not understand that anti-Semitism affects our lives, their lives, we have to be clueless. We have to be disconnected from the world. And in many ways, that's the indication of, you know, what's reported or not reported in Israeli media. It's very interesting to track literally my own Twitter feed in English and in Hebrew. Yes. They're like Beautiful two world. separate peoples. Two, two separate realities. Yes. And, and so we need to be, when I say we, now I mean Anglo Olim. We need to lean in. We need, for the state of Israel, we have responsibility. It's not enough to just live here and integrate. And you spoke of integration. And you know, at the Aliyah and Klita Committee, and I'll take this moment just to wish um, to my dear colleague, um, David um, Ben Margalit, uh, uh, David Bitan, who is actually the head, the chair of, of the Aliyah and Klita Committee and is, is actually sick um, with COVID 19. Um, um, we've okay. done we've done some tremendous work in identifying um, or in, in, in making it our job to identify the hurdles that currently face Olim. Part of that is if I spoke about, you know, COVID-19 and the opportunities alongside the challenges, well, there is this anticipated quarter of a million Olim from all over the world that you know, our, our potential Olim. But I say in today's world, they're just potential. If we don't fulfill our role in A, identifying the hurdles, B, removing the hurdles, and C, ensuring integration. And integration doesn't mean leaving behind what you came with. That's not what it means in 2020. Yeah. You know, it, it's not what it should mean in 2020. It may, it's, it's the reason we need truth and reconciliation for those that came in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, but it should not be what it means in 2020. And that is a very important role that we need to play in order to really diversify not only the viewpoints, but the decision makers' tools and abilities to make better decisions that are relevant for today's challenges. I want to tie in a couple of things that we we discussed. Um, yeah, I, years ago when I was a, kind of a strategist for for the IDF, I, I kept on bring after the Lebanon War, the Second Lebanon War, I kept bringing up um, war is no longer just uh, land, air, and sea. We now have to talk about the digital uh, aspect of it. And already then, um, you know, we we had identified that our our adversaries. Um, were very much manipulating. I mean, just flat out manipulating these new social media platforms and and access to the internet, uh, the democratization of, of the digital space that democracies didn't think to do. Um, and and now you have democratic actors who who are also doing this, but but we were late. And you had people like Hezbollah and Hamas, and now you have Turkey and Qatar, and you kind of and the Islamists of the world in Iran, and uh, and Russia is doing it for its reasons, and China for its reasons, who are manipulating straight up manipulating these these spaces that are supposed to to lead to um to a plurality of of 
platforms and, and ways to access truth and insight and, and viewpoints. And there's people taking advantage of it quite cynically. Um, let, let's see if we can tie something in here. Um, something that was changing, something that was changing very, I think, deeply, um, fundamentally changing in this region, maybe in the world, um, and, and the alignments of countries. Um, and, and I think countries that are recognizing this this new aspect that I talked about, those who are willing to manipulate reality and those who want to shape actual reality for, for the betterment of most of of the inhabitants of this region or the world, we now have new um, normalization ties, peace treaties with, with four countries. We had a delegation um, of Emiratis and Bahrainis who you personally uh, met and showed around the Knesset in what was surely something historic. Some of them um, were friends of mine before they came here and the rest of them I, I got to hang out with and become friends. Um, were any of them on the show? Were any of them on, on any the of show? our previous Emirati you, uh, Abraham Accords episodes? No, no, okay. they were not. We're going to have to get some of them on the show. Um, wonderful people. And um, what I wanted to ask here is, um, and I'll tell you, by the way, uh, something cool I read. Uh, somebody quoted you or described you, I think, in the Times of Israel article as an island of activism in a Knesset straight jacketed by two years of a political crisis. And I thought, I thought that was really wonderful that you're, you're doing, everyone's kind of jockeying for power and you're like, okay, let them jockey for power. I'm going to, I'm going to use my parliamentary platform and I'm just going to do it. You know, everyone seems to be so concerned about becoming a minister and, and the more senior minister. And, and we kind of tend to lose that. The parliament is actually a pretty powerful tool to advance goals and you're doing it. Um, I'd love to hear kind of if we can tie this into just a big overall point, the whole uh, UAE, Bahrain, and now Morocco and Sudan, and, and how is the region changing um, to a point where we now have allies on our side and we're no longer singled out? May, are we eventually going to see this change on the UN level? Um, and, and I'd love to hear kind of your connection to this and maybe your connection to the group also that was here. So first of all, it was really, it was historic. It was on Hanukkah. It was very emotional to walk around the Knesset with them for their first visit in Knesset. It was, um, it was, the excitement was palpable. If I describe the night of the Mahapach, the excitement was palpable to the extent that you had like, you know, security guards running over to ask to take a picture and speaking to them in Arabic. And, you know, Shmuel, the security guard says to me, I'm from Yemen. And, you know, the other security guard says, I'm from Iraq. And, you know, and approaching them to say, you know, can I take a picture with tears in their eyes? So, and I also have to say, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a home where, memory and reminder, they're prospective. They're not retrospective. We don't look at the past to brood over what was. We look at it in order to ensure that we create a better future. Mm. So in that way, you know, and we just marked, and I say that because we just marked 850,000 Jews that were cleansed, ethnically cleansed from Arab lands and Iran. Now I'll say about this historic moment that it's potentially a historic paradigm shift. And the potential or the realization of that potential, that's in our hands. We could miss the potential. We could miss its realization if we don't understand the significance of this. And I'll say what I mean by that, you know, and I referred to it several times as, and including to this group. And I, you know, I said to them, and you might've seen the response and I'll share it, but I said to them, look for me, and I spoke about this in Knesset, 
Um, for me, really, what this represents is the, the transition from what we know of as rejectionism to normalization, but it's based on a pivot away from the three no's, no to recognition of Israel, no to negotiation with Israel, no to peace with Israel, to the three yeses, yes to recognition of Israel, yes to negotiation with Israel, and yes to peace with Israel. And to me, the order is very fundamental. So to me, without recognition, straight out recognition, recognition of the other's right to exist as who you are, in this case, the Jewish and democratic state of Israel, whoop, right back to the Declaration of Independence I go, the right of the state of Israel to exist as Jewish and democratic, that is the basis that enables any kind of negotiation. And that is the only way to secure sustainable, long lasting coexistence and peace and prosperity in the region and beyond, the only way. And we have sort of become accustomed to flipping that, when you think about it, to flipping that equation. Oh yeah, we want peace. Then we'll negotiate what that peace looks like. And maybe at some point there will be recognition of the other. When you think of countries we've had peace with for lengthy periods, but they're very cold pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's what's unique about this. This people to people warmth that suddenly recognizes, and when you think of the name, the Abrahamic Accords, and we shouldn't miss this, is about shared values. It's not, it's, I mean, it's not that there aren't shared interests and I'm not naive. And of course, interests are important and business is important and entrepreneurship opportunities are great. But if we miss this, the fundamental understanding that the basic foundation of this potential paradigm shift is that recognition of each other's right to exist. In this case, Israel's right to exist as Jewish and democratic. That would be the first time that this is the order that things happen. And I would argue it lights the way forward for the pieces we already have, challenging the countries we already have those peace, peace agreements with to enable their publics, their peoples to sense and benefit from that warm peace and enabling other peoples. And I, and, I, and, I, and I differentiate peoples from leadership because leadership may not be ready, but the Palestinian people looking at this that recognize that the first thing that has to happen is that they have agency they deserve the agency to recognize us and we can mutually you know coexist only if we recognize each other's right to exist that is a tremendous potential paradigm shift that i think we shouldn't miss and so when i spoke to them and actually at the end of and if you you know saw that little clip at the end of it you know what what, what, what was actually then, you know, sort of spoken back to me was, we don't just recognize you after being here, we love you. So that is really something we shouldn't miss and I believe is fundamental. And by the way, this process also exposes and it connects directly to the imperative to expose and address double standards. Because when you look at responses of certain countries, Iran, Turkey, Hezbollah, Hamas, when you look at the responses to these, you know, tectonic or potential paradigm shifts that are happening that involve recognition, you can start sifting out where that new alliance lies. And that new alliance is based on shared values. It allows Islam, the Abrahamic Accords allow Islam to take back the voice of Islam rather than radical Islam, which yeah. is not Islam, right? That's what that conversation is about. That's the tremendous warmth that we feel. It was incredible. When I, my first night there, I went out to dinner with two new friends, and this was the first time I was meeting them. I had a an online relationship with them uh, leading up to, it, and we planned to go to dinner. And and I, they met you on J date, right? <laughs> an online relationship, Abrahamic date. <laughs> the Abrahamic date. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good one. The A date. The A date. Um, so we we went. Um, me, um, 
obviously an Israeli Jew, um, and, and three Arab Muslims who, who dress in the traditional clothes and, and who definitely follow you know Muslim tradition. Um, and we went to the kosher restaurant in Dubai, and um, it, it, we we were talking the whole the whole conversation was one where we were coming from Jewish and comparing Judaism and Islam and Jewish viewpoints and Muslim viewpoints. And, and the whole time I was thinking to myself and every deep interaction I had with an Emirati and also not Emiratis, Muslims and Arabs from, from around the world who, who I met with and had long conversations with, there is a kind of a, a maybe like a, a very modern kind of almost reformed version of Islam. And we did a podcast where we talked to uh, four Emiratis um, on, on our show a few weeks back. And we said, this seems like, you know, kind of a modern, modern Orthodox or reform Islam. And they said, no, this is Islam. No. And it was hijacked and we're taking it back. And it was, um, it, it was a really beautiful moment. And it was, it was so refreshing from everything we've gotten to know about Islam here um, in Israel, both just being an average Israeli, but also, you know, I've, I've studied the Middle East for a long time. It was just very, um, is very refreshing. So let's tie that in. We, we, we talked about the UAE and the Abraham Accords. We talked about the Palestinians a little bit. You, you've, um, uh, again, just from, from the research we, we did uh, leading up to this, you support uh, the extension of sovereignty or what other people call annexation over uh, Judea and Samaria, over parts of the West Bank. You supported the Trump plan, um, which allowed for uh, the, the formula that was, that was proposed by the Trump plan was that Israel um, annex uh, 30% of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of, of the West Bank of Judea and Samaria, and the Palestinians get kind of a pseudo state, we'll call it a state minus um, on, on the rest of it. And yet, when you talk to the Emiratis, um, they have not given up, at least officially, on the idea of a Palestinian state. What their move was intended to do was to push off Israeli annexation, Israeli unilateral moves. Where, where do you fall on that, you know, on the future of, of a possible Palestinian sovereignty on any parts of Judea and Samaria? And how does that tie into this? So, first of all, I'll say for me, I, I mean, I guess I say this as a lawyer, too. It, it is important to differentiate annexation, which suggests you're annexing something that isn't yours to application of law or application of sovereignty, which mm-hmm. I would I actually refer to it as application of law or sovereignty for multiple reasons. We can go through the history of it in another, you know, another another time. Um and the application of law and sovereignty actually over what is undisputed and that the state of Israel and actually the blue and white platform, you know, so the blue and white platform in its entirety, including and, you know, what was Hosan Israel and became blue and white, actually very, very clearly and succinctly, um, you know, sort of um, highlights, you know, the geographic boundaries of the state of Israel, including, um, you know, including uh, the entire Jordan Valley, including the Golan Heights, including the United Jerusalem, um, and including all of the large settlement blocks that enable um, a continued growth that can be expected when people live somewhere, people have children, people have grandchildren, and so on. What it also includes is an understanding that we have a consistent application of um, the understanding that neither Jews nor Arabs will be removed from their homes, right, as opposed to what we know um, happened in the past. Looking at the pivot from the three no's to the three yeses, which include and must include the recognition of Israel's right to exist, and I'll say it again, as Jewish and democratic, not Israel democratic state of all its citizens alongside a Palestinian 
whatever, autonomy plus state that will be Judenrein, not that. That is not the option that we can be speaking of. And that's where I see the potential. And I think for the, for the, Palestinians, the Palestinians themselves to receive back agency, um, to look forward to a better future for their children. And I'll say one more thing. When you think of those 850,000 Jews that were refugees from Arab lands, they never re received refugee status. It certainly was never handed down to their children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren. And you think of the tremendous disservice of the victimization of those very Palestinian people that have been given this sort of otkain, forever refugee you will be. I see that as a counter human rights um, understanding. And when you spoke before about the importance of challenging what happens online and what we see happening in terms of the abuse or the use and abuse of you know, different um, regimes using the reality online in order to let's say radicalize, well, that happens from a human rights perspective too. And I'll take it back to the human rights um, perspective because it's very important that we view things through that lens. Again, those are the agreed upon principles of the community of nations, of the family of nations. And we cannot um, create sort of a game based on rules that some people break and continue playing and benefiting from the, from the game. Certainly Palestinian people today, you have agency. And with agency come rights and responsibilities. And with rights and responsibilities, and I have to take this back to what happened at the UAE and what we even see happening today in Saudi Arabia in terms of inculcating hate and incitement into children, into the future generation. And what happens today, and again, I take it to the Palestinians and how you educate today's children who will hopefully be able to coexist tomorrow. And that we saw happening in the UAE, teaching tolerance, teaching coexistence, putting into the curriculum, as we speak, the Abraham Accords are already there. They're already there. And I also say this vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the countries funding um, those textbooks, the countries assisting the Palestinians, and actually all they're doing is perpetuating that victimization and disabling Palestinian children and taking away the rights of those Palestinian children and taking their agency, removing it, stripping them of agency so that they do not have equal rights and responsibility because they are taught to hate and they are taught anti-Semitism. So European countries funding school curricula that is today violating IRA working definition of anti-Semitism also has to be held into account. And so you see that everything actually intersects at this historic junction in time. And our role and our responsibility to sound these voices and to both, as I said, expose double standards, address them, and take our role in history. You know, Rabbi Sachs said, you know, that wherever he went, he met people that respected Jews that respected themselves. And it is very important, and you actually touched upon it before, um, you know, sitting there in that restaurant as a Jew in a kosher restaurant. And we have to remember that, that that's a little bit to do with, a, you know, ribonuto datit as well. And I'm very hopeful that, you know, that we actually are able to be that generation that builds that next level of, you know, infrastructure um, of the future of the state of Israel. Amazing. Do we have time to sneak in one more question or are you, uh, do you have to go? One more. One more question. Uh, well, do you want to get something in there well, before I, we get I, to that? Before that's a wrap. I, I was going to say this is a wrap question, but but it's not going to happen. She is going to be reelected. No, she has to. We she hope so. To. We were going to ask what your plans are if 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 you if you don't get reelected, but we're going to. You can't answer the that table. question because you're going to get reelected. You're going to get. You can't go on record saying I have plans for if I don't get reelected. You're getting reelected. That's, no. that's happening. We we're very interested we're being uh, being uh, Olim as we are. We're very interested in Israel diaspora relations. Next week uh, we have Daniel Gordis. 
uh, on the podcast, and we're going to be doing a deep dive into that. Um, have you given any thought to some of these discussions that are out there about um, whether diaspora communities, diaspora Jewry should have a stronger, even an official kind of voice in Israel, at least on matters that touch directly upon them, if we're talking about the Kotel, if we're talking about the recognition of the non-Orthodox streams, etc. Uh, have you given any thought to that on a personal level and on a, a party level? So I've given it a lot of thought, and I'll say that one of the things that drive me in Knesset is actually the imperative to identify, and I would say, renegotiate Israel-Diaspora relations. It's actually one of the reasons that I'm, I'm very privileged to head and to chair the Israel-Diaspora relation um, subcommittee um, that's a part of the Alian Klita Committee. And I've had some very, very interesting engagements there with communities throughout the world. One of the things that's very important is for me to sound those voices inside Knesset. Um, I, I have to say that I don't support the legislation or legislating in that way, um, the, um, the, the influence that uh, diaspora jury should have in Israel's Knesset. I don't think that that's the paradigm shift we need. I think that's actually more of the same. And I'd say, how do you choose which issues? All issues affect diaspora jury. If you know that, you know, the Kotel or conversion or war in the state of Israel, they all affect diaspora jury. The second question, of course, would be, who is it that gets to vote? Um, Who is it that represents diaspora jury? And I think that our responsibility is way deeper than that. I think that that's sort of like a check or nice to have or and can be damaging, by the way, um, in terms of um, the understanding and even the power struggle um, that it could create. And we see it all the time. The importance of the engagement, and this connects to all of our conversation, actually, of the state of Israel, of Israeli decision makers that acknowledge, that recognize the challenges that different communities throughout the world have today. And I would say COVID-19, again, the opportunity alongside the challenge, the paradigm has to shift. It's no more of that relationship that includes power, you know, and you fill in, you know, power. Is it money? Is it one side giving the other side? What does this relationship look like? And we need to renew that um, that covenant. There is no doubt of that. I'd say again, Declaration of Independence, the renewal of the covenant in terms of the understanding of what the state of Israel is, it's right there in that declaration, right? It is the homeland for all Jews throughout the world. Now, what does that mean? That means that we can assist in many ways that are actually beyond financial. That means that, and those are the discussions that we actually have at the committee level. What are the needs of the communities? Instead of us telling them, like you said, you know, Ben, I came to Israel, I have to shed a little bit of my whatever and become Israeli. Well, what are their needs? I don't want to tell them. I want to hear from them. And and the discussions that we have at the committee level with many of the communities, and we've had, you know, anti-Semitism on campus and with the Bahraini Jewish community and what that means for them. And we can go into it next time we speak, but fascinating understandings and the very fact that those voices are heard inside Knesset that make Israeli Knesset members aware of the importance, the significance of that conversation and what the challenges are of communities. And then as we make various decisions, they all affect you know, communities and diaspora, all of our decisions. We just have to be informed. That's part of my role in Knesset that I hope I continue to um, um, you know, enable bringing in those voices. I think it's our responsibility, 100% of our generation to hear those voices and to engage deeply with all communities abroad, including communities that are awaiting to make Aliyah and those that are not. Yeah, 100%. Final thing, what's, what's your wish for 2021? 
Oi. Um, <laughs> Save the best uh, look, I, I, I mean, we haven't even discussed COVID-19 and how it's impacted the state of Israel. Re- refreshing, and, you know, right? We made it a full hour without talking about COVID. It's, a, it's incredible. And, and I'll say something about that. I'll say something about that. And I see it, you know, in in the many committees that I sit on, I sit on about, you know, eight committees, two subcommittees, and I chair the committee on, I call it the committee on addictions, but it's really the committee on alcohol and, you know, drug um, abuse or use and abuse. Um, You know, I think that COVID-19 hasn't invented anything new. I think it's basically shown a big spotlight on our challenges, on our strengths and on our weaknesses. And my wish for 2021, personally, collectively, nationally, is that we identify the opportunities and realize them. Because really the changes that are needed in the state of Israel, long-term planning, transparent, holistic um, 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 policies that are applied consistently to all, those are things that ail us and they cut across the entire system, if you look at healthcare and education and infrastructure and everywhere that I scratch the surface, I realize that, it, you know, talk about paradigm shift. We're here. We exist. 72 years have passed. It's time to grow up and it's time to change the paradigm and create good governance and transparent policies and, and long-term planning. And those are, if I had one wish for 2021, is COVID-19 has given us the opportunities to really identify the need for those and even to propose reforms in all those areas. I said addictions, but also education and also healthcare, all of them. And so I would hope for us that we really have the insight, the foresight, the understanding to identify those opportunities and to realize them so that we can shape the way forward in a much more responsible way um, than we um, have over the last year. That's... um, what you said kind of uh, uh, reminds me of something. I don't know if it's something you wrote or where you were quoted. And I actually published recently um, kind of how COVID is uh, affecting the Jewish world, the Jewish institutionalized world. And I think we both refer to Ram Emanuel's don't let a good crisis go to waste um, in one way or another. And that's what it comes down to. I, I, we were going to end with that, but you mentioned you were on the uh, drug and alcohol. Is, is Israel going to see marijuana legalized? I keep seeing it brought up and then not brought up and then brought up. Is that, can, can you give us a and scoop? you're Canadian, so like we kind of no. <laughs> <laughs> so we've spoken to Canada. We know how that's gone down. We've spoken to Colorado. We know how you know the channel. Um, I've spent and I actually chose um, you know because I knew I had a limited time on the committee as committee chair, not because of what's happening now, but because I was actually appointed for one year only as committee chair. I actually chose addictions as the drill down subject through which I I really sort of um, identify the challenges that we have now. And I'll say with regards to legalization or you know recreational marijuana use, um, the first thing that I have to say is it's not yes or no, it's how. And the state of Israel at the moment has very large gaps that we have to close, that we have to address. So when I say the word addictions, we don't, we still don't have an understanding um, that runs through all of the ministries of what addictions are. We don't have one single interministerial organization or overhead organization or um, you know, some sort of a governmental um, oversight board that actually sees that we have a holistic understanding of the challenges with regards to addictions. And I would say it starts with education and, um, and, uh, and equipping you know, educators and parents and children and teenagers with information and, and knowledge so that we know what addictions are. Um, and, and, and by the way, it's not just addictive substances 
substances, it's addictive behaviors, and so forth. And of course, then treatment plans and everything that comes, comes um, you know, sort of with that. So when we talk about legalization, again, I identify it as an opportunity, an opportunity to identify the existing gaps, to close them. Some of them require legislation. And actually, you know, there was an interministerial committee that gave, that submitted its, you know, its proposal and that, you know, gave its recommendations. It has to be done in a holistic, comprehensive way that includes data collection, that informs policy, that then policy then gets fed back into the data collection, because this is an evolving sort of situation where no country actually has enough data and information yet on its own findings. Um, and it is a process. It is one of those processes that I imagine the state of Israel will embark upon. And I hope it does so with tremendous responsibility for the um, comprehensiveness and, and holistic nature that this process requires. Terrific. Uh, how can people find you? How can people be in touch? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, so yeah, I'm um, just Michal Kotler, um, um, or Kotler Wunsch on Twitter, I think, um, and, um, Facebook as well, um, Michal Kotler Wunsch. Um, and, uh, I really look forward to engaging both with you and if you have listeners that reach out and, 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 you know, maybe I'll end with one last anecdote, the importance and the responsibility of being a voice for Olim is such that actually, not only am I the voice, but I learn so much. And so I was informed of, let's say, a very, very challenging time that Olim were having giving birth in the state of Israel and not having families here. And my ability to assist and to um, create an extension of the criteria that enable, for example, visits um, to um, lone soldiers, Bnochirut and Olim that had given birth in Israel since the beginning of COVID, it came from the Shetach. It came from a new mom that just wanted her mother to be able to come and visit her. So I am very grateful and I encourage um, Olim, doesn't matter if they're, you know, Vatikim or Chadashim, to sound their voices because that is how I learn what the most burning issues are. And through you, if you are an address that people can turn to and you can refer whoever it is, you know, with questions to us, then we'd be grateful. Well, we awesome. will definitely do that. Yeah, and uh, we applaud you for all the very hard work you do. Um, it, it seems like some people are in politics for power, and it seems like you're definitely in politics to make a difference. Um, and and we applaud you, and we wish you continued uh, success in, in all you do for all of us. Um, if the country goes to elections, we wish you also personal success uh, and hope to see you back uh, or continue your time in the Knesset. And uh, we thank you for joining us and um, for enlightening us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.